Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Game Talk Radio. I'm Greg. Today we're going to be talking about a few different stories, some pretty serious ones, unfortunately. And normally we do this podcast on Tuesdays. I'm doing it on a Sunday morning because a lot of these came through and I didn't want to wait a couple more days. And unfortunately, Tuesday I have some obligations I want to take care of. So we're just kind of pushing up a little bit forward here today. So the first story we're going to talk about is that a Kentucky governor says that video games are to blame for the um, school shooting that just occurred last Wednesday on Valentine's Day. We're going to talk about the System Shock reboot uh, that, uh, it's taken place. It was a Kickstarter a couple years ago and how that's currently in trouble. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, me, I went and saw Black Panther. I'm going to talk a little about that and how, how, uh, the movie was. And then, uh, before I get to all that, I wanted to quick give a shout out to, um, Apollo legend. Once again, the dude killed it. Uh, he put out another Billy Mitchell video where he lays out all the evidence like he always does. And it was just incredible. You got to check it out. Uh, I, I I like to report on news that's important to the industry, not necessarily like drama and news. Like I don't report on someone reporting on something. So I wasn't going to cover what he covered without throwing in my own opinion. But it's great info. So go check it out. So first, though, if you hadn't heard by some crazy chance, you hadn't heard last Wednesday, there was another school shooting. 17 people were killed. Another 15 were sent to the hospital in, in I guess it's technically the second deadliest school shooting in America, which is even just a crazy thing to say that we have to talk about. We have to specify that it's the school shooting second deadliest. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy. And in fact, I didn't know this until I read it, but it actually had more fatalities than Columbine did. And that got a lot of, you know, that got a lot of press. Uh, and, and obviously the worst is still the Sandy Hook elementary school shooting, which was 26 children and staff. So basically, the the suspect I don't I always hate when they have to say that you know and they have to say he allegedly did this like we know that he did this right but the the suspect basically went to the high school had an AR-15 had a gas mask had smoke grenades pulled the fire alarm when all the students came rushing out then started shooting uh, now a little bit differently is that this shooter uh, he tried to escape he actually a lot of the shooters will will do stuff like this and then they'll kill themselves and this shooter decided to stick it out. Um, and try to get away and then was later apprehended and he's been charged with 17 counts of premeditated murder and uh, I, I actually I'm glad he's alive because hopefully we can try to understand this maybe and, and understand what's all going on and oftentimes when there's a, a thing even um, a, any sort of tragedy where someone does something like this you don't get to understand the why and I think that almost hurts more sometimes than other things so um, again, it's a really heavy subject, but what we're here to talk about, and, and I'm open to any comments and, and talks about gun debates and such in the comments, if everyone keeps it civil, but what I'm here to talk about is that the Kentucky governor says, um, his, his name's Bevan, uh, Matt Bevan, Kentucky governor, Matt Bevan. So if you want to live in Kentucky, you can have this guy as your governor, um, uh, he was on the Leland Conway show, which I'm guessing is some sort of right-wing talk show. Uh, and he said that guns are not the problem. We have a cultural problem in America. You look at the culture of death that is being celebrated. There are video games that, yes, are listed for mature audiences, but kids play them and everybody knows it. And there's nothing to prevent a child from playing them that celebrate the slaughtering of people. So 
uh, he, he's basically saying that uh, it's our culture. So it's um, video games, movies, rap music, violent, whatever. You know, that that's what that's what Mr. Bevan says. Governor Bevan says. And so he goes on to say, quote, there are quote unquote video games and they're forced down our throats under the guise of protected speech. It's garbage. It's like pornography. They have desensitized people to the value of human life, to the dignity of women, to the dignity of human decency. So he was asked about the possibility of implementing gun control measures to which he immediately waves it off. And he says, quote, here's the question that nobody ever wants to answer or is able to answer. He says, what, what would any rule that anyone has proposed have done to prevent this from happening? Uh, that idea that no one wants to answer the question is most baffling. So basically, his, he is not, he, he's, uh, he's a Republican, so he's not looking to ban any sort of guns or enact any sort of gun laws or gun restrictions, um, even though there are a lot of people that want those things. Uh, he's not interested in that. So uh, he also made some comments about how, you know, years ago that kids would bring guns to school to show them to their friends. So, but basically he is 100% blaming video games. And well, really he's blaming our culture, but, but he's getting into video games. Now, this isn't the first time, and it won't be the last, but this isn't the first time that video games have been blamed for violence. So um, this was always a common theme for me when I was growing up in the nineties, whenever I had like a school paper, I had to do middle school, high school, college in the, in the two thousands. I was always loved this topic because it was intriguing to me when, when I was a younger kid, I remember being like six or seven years old and we watched RoboCop for the first time. And that movie is incredibly bloody. And I, my parents let me watch it. And I, I didn't, I knew it was fake, I guess, you know, and, and if you watch that movie today, the practical effects are incredible still. And I remember getting a copy of mortal Kombat when I was, I don't know, 13 or 14. And I played a lot of that. I like to think I grew into a pretty well-adjusted adult, but so this isn't the first time that, uh, that video games have been blamed. I often think that oftentimes older people like to blame whatever the younger generation's into. I think you could argue that it was rock and roll music in the fifties and sixties. And then it was, you know, television. And then it was, you know, heavy metal music and now it's video games and it's, it's movies. Like it's always an excuse. You know, we always have to find a reason why these things happen as opposed to being able to call it like it is that some people are just hardwired like this. And some people are just going to do things like this. Some people have no empathy. And, and, and I think I actually had this debate with a friend of mine yesterday, but I think it's often, I think it's almost, we're too quick to say it's mental illness because I'm starting to believe that there are just some people on this earth that are, that are just, wrong and and they don't have feelings for other people and and they would do something like this and is that really a mental disease at that point i don't know it could just be that they don't they aren't programmed that way what made them that way who knows um but my issue is always trying to find something to blame and always trying to blame video games now i'll be the first to admit in all the research i ever did and everything i never once saw a correlation between video game violence and real world violence but when I use my personal experience, I'm talking about games like Doom and Mortal Kombat and Quake and Duke Nukem. And <laughs> these are games that are quite different from the games we have today. So when I was five years old, I wasn't playing Call of Duty <laughs> for five, six hours a night, 
killing people online, chatting online. I wasn't playing a war simulator. And and I'm not saying that in a, in a negative way, but Call of Duty is 100% a war simulator. They try to make the game as realistic as possible. They record actual audio. They get actual models of guns. They try to be historically accurate. The you know the more recent modern warfares put you right into the Middle East, I mean, th which is a conflict that was active. So this is this is something that they strive for. Now again, there's an ESRB rating system. The ESRB rating system says their games are mature rated and they should not be played by children under 17 years of age. So then if kids are playing these like the you know the governor says and I'm the first to admit it, I, in my store people buy these all the time for their kids all the time and we tell them what's in it. You know, I'm not their parent. I'm not going to make that decision for them and say that they can't buy it cuz I'll just go to Walmart and buy it anyway. But there are parents out there who don't care and let their kids have anything they want. And and that's their right as a parent. But I think we, you know, and maybe if that's what the governor was talking about, how parents need to be more responsible for the actions of their kids. I, I'm, I'm on board with that. You know, if violent video games warped a kid's mind from young age to old, whose fault is that? Is that the maker of the video game who clearly made that game for someone older? Or is it the fault of the parents? Is it, is it the fault of... Yeah, you know, whose fault is it? And and, and I, I have to lean more on the fact that's the fault of the parents and the and the caretakers. And I and I understand that there are a lot of people in this world that don't have good parents or don't have parents at all. And, and uh, I was on um, last week. I was on the news, uh, the local news. They were doing a story actually about that came out. I did a podcast on it like a month or two ago about um, the World Health Organization categorizing uh, video game addiction as a real disease and so uh the, the local news talked to a, a like a psychiatrist and then came and talked to me as a game store owner to try to get like both sides of it and even even the psychiatrist and i both totally agreed that it's not necessarily the video game that causes it it's you know that person had those addictive tendencies this person had those negative murderous tendencies you know, if even if by some crazy chance he played this game and it taught him how to be a killer, is that even the game's fault? Or would he have learned how to do that from YouTube videos or from watching John Wick? I mean, you know, I don't know. Um, but I am the first one to say that I do believe there's a cultural problem. And it's not I guess I don't even want to say a problem. But when we talk about, um, you know, the governor here, for instance, will talk about how video games are the cause of the problem, but he won't blame guns because guns don't kill people people kill people and if you believe that i'm i'm, I'm okay with that i'm pretty sure that uh, that the average person um is responsible for his or her actions but then how can you blame video games for it <laughs> so you're, you're not willing to blame the instrument that was used but you're willing to blame something that like another outside element if you're going to say people kill people, then that's your stance. Don't be hypocritical about it. Then you have to admit that it was that person made that decision. And so the problem is societal. And we have people like like this gentleman who felt powerless, quite honestly. And when, when you feel powerless, something like a gun can make you feel powerful. And that's... What's so sad to me about that is that the writing was on the wall with someone like this and there were signs, but you have to wonder what happened to this person. And it doesn't at all excuse what he did. But what what was it about this person? Like what happened to him? You know, was it because he um, there's a lot of stuff about him being 
you know, really right wing. And, you know, he had a Trump make America great again hat and he also. So, but what made was was he ridiculed for his beliefs on that? Was he was he ridiculed? Was he was he shunned at school? Did people think he was weird because he loved guns and he was, you know, a big fan? I mean, we don't know what happened to him to make him that way. But we do know that he clearly felt inadequate. He felt powerless. And something like this gave him the power and, and it gave it like we know this from a psychological standpoint that that's why he did it was that he just felt he felt like he needed recognition. And so, like I said, you start to look at, well, why does he need that? You know, and, and I look at when I was a kid, when I was I, I, I my, one of my earliest memories, when I was five years old and I got this really cool toy for my birthday and it was like a vest you wore. And then you had squirt guns. And if you shot the squirt gun at the right point on the vest, it would make like a buzzing noise. And it came with two vests, two guns. And it was really awesome. And a friend of mine, Ryan, came over. And we were playing this. And and it was cool. Like you ran around, you shot him, in the, you shot him and then it would beep. And then he'd shoot after you. And it was a game. Why at five years old are we so automatically entertained by guns? You know, that I believe is a strange problem that we have. We, we've, we've not that so much of this is a mental issue. It is a culture issue in the sense that, you know, we, we've all of a sudden turned guns into these magical, cool, ultra awesome things. Like, remember when, like, you used to see smoking and everything because smoking was cool. Think about things that you think are cool, right? So we're told by media and culture and, and movies and everything that sunglasses are cool, <laughs> Cigarettes are cool. Guns are cool. Long black jackets are cool, you know? Um, and so I think culturally we have to, we have to try to figure out why at five years old, am I having fun running around trying to shoot a friend of mine? Why is that a thing? Why, why, you know, Nerf guns, Nerf guns, while colored plastic look different, they still have a trigger. They still have a handle. Oftentimes the guns almost look like big old school, you know, six round chambers. And then you've got the big rifles and the sniper shots and stuff like that. And so why, why are we turning them into something they're not, you know? And, and one thing you have to understand, and this is in the U S if, if any of any viewers not from the U S, you know, I, um, you may not get this as much, but from, from an understanding, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up around guns. I used to be a hunter. I used to have my own guns. I don't anymore. It's just something I fell out of. I don't really care much for it anymore, but I used to, I have no fear of guns. I, I grew up around them. Uh, my dad was a very responsible gun owner. He had multiple rifles, shotguns, pistols, and we used them responsibly. He didn't take them out and, and take a picture with them. And he wasn't, you didn't see him being like, Hey, you know, trying to be all cool to him. It was a tool to help him hunt. Uh, and that's what we used it for. He understood that it was a tool. It wasn't a, a, some sort of piece of entertainment. And that's what we've kind of devolved into now is that guns have become this sort of, it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a, what do I want to say. It's like a, it's a, it's a cool piece. It's a, it's a piece of stature. It's, it's like a, it's an accessory, you know, to your, to your coolness as opposed to being a tool. Like, I don't walk around with a hammer or a drill being like, hey, man, check out this drill. No, I mean, it's it's a drill. So it's a tool that I use for drilling things. <laughs> I mean, and that's, I think, how when you start looking at guns instead of being over, you know, glamorized. But again, I enjoy that. And I'm the first one to say I love movies like John Wick. I love The Matrix. Um, I love gunplay. Like, you see it, and it is so cool. Why is it so cool? That's what we maybe need to address. And so it's not always a mental health thing. It's, it's the fact that people who feel powerless see people who 
are powerful because of them having guns. And there's a sort of, I don't want to say machismo because it's not just a guy thing, but there's a certain, um, there's a certain like, I don't know, attitude and, and like swagger that people that have guns have. Uh, oftentimes you'll see people who, while trying to flex their second amendment rights, you'll see them taking video of them walking around like down the street with a gun. And it's almost more, it's not so much they're trying to prove a point. It's that they're trying to get a reaction out of people. And I think that's, I mean, that's what makes me crazy about all this sort of stuff. And, and if that's the type of gun owner that people want to be and people are, that's what scares me. It doesn't scare me that people want guns to hunt. I mean, our, our country was founded on hunting and trapping, um, migrating from east to west, and so and, and settling. And so much of that was passed down through family history. You know, it was it was a rite of passage for your father to pass down a gun to you, and then you would use that gun to hunt and provide for your family. Then you would pass it down to your son, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of where this all comes from. That's why guns are such a, a part of our culture here. But when did they stop become? When did they stop being a tool? and then start becoming like a, a piece of coolness and pride, you know? But anyway, so getting back to it, I thought, I, I, I have to say, I didn't have these sort of games growing up. So I can't say what, what it's like to be a five-year-old now. And if your parents let you play Call of Duty, World, World War II, all night, every night, and all you do all day is just shoot stuff and that, if that would affect you later on. I can't say that for a fact. So I won't. But what I will do is I will go to the uh, a list of video game controversies and scientific data. So uh, all the way back to 19, let's see, I'm going to read some of these in the, the prints mega slow, mega small. Um, the common hypothesis is that playing violent video games increases aggression in young people. Various studies claim to support this hypothesis. Other studies find no link. Debate among scholars on both sides remains contentious, and as of yet, no clear consensus has been reached either for or against effects, whether positive or negative. So that's where we're at. They've done a bunch of studies. Some say it does affect it. Some say it doesn't. We're right where we started. We don't know. In 1998, Stephen Kirsch reported in the Journal of Childhood that use of, of video games may lead to the acquisition of a hostile attribution bias. So here's, here's what he talked about. 55 subjects were randomized to play either violent or nonviolent video games. Subjects were later asked to read stories in which the character's behavior was ambiguous. Participants randomized to play violent video games were more likely to provide negative interpretation of the stories. Another study done by Anderson and Dill in 2000 found a correlation in the undergraduate students between playing violent video games and violent crime with the correlation stronger in aggressive male players. Although other scholars have suggested that results from the studies were not consistent and that the methodology was flawed. So again, we have a study that says, Hey, we found something. And then other people challenge it and say, no, man, it's, it's that's not right. You didn't, you didn't properly do it. The, the study. So we had in 2001, uh, David Satcher and the surgeon general of the United States. So that's, that's a big deal said, we clearly associate media violence to aggressive behavior. Now, media violence, not necessarily video games, but media violence, movies, video games, heavy metal music, I guess you'd consider media. But the impact was very small compared to other things. Some may not be happy with that, but that's where the science is. That's, that's what they said. Um, we had a study in 2003 conducted at Iowa State University uh, assessing pre-existing attitudes and violence in children. The study concerned 
children between ages 5 and 12 and were assessed for the typical amount of time they played video games per week and pre-existing empathy and attitudes towards violence. The children played a violent or non-violent video game for approximately 15 minutes. Afterwards, their pulse rates were recorded and the children were asked how frustrating the games were on a 1 to 10 scale. Last, the children were given drawings of everyday situations, some more likely to have aggressive actions following the depiction, while others an empathetic action. Results show that there were no significant effects of video game playing in the short term, with violent video games and non-violent video games having had no significant differences. Uh, so there's a bunch of studies about it, and up, up to the most recently, um, in 2015... A new Angry Birds meta-analysis of video games suggest, suggested that video games, including violent games, had minimal impact on child's behavior, including violence, uh, pro-social behavior, and mental health. The journal included a debate section in the meta-analysis, including scholars who were both supportive and critical of the meta-analysis. The original author also responded to these comments, suggesting few coherent methodological critiques had been raised. In 2016, Kanamari and Doi uh, replicated the original Angry Birds meta in an article in the same journal and concluded that the critiques of the original meta were largely unwarranted. Uh, I'd like to know more about that study. I don't know why we're looking at Angry Birds. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and then uh, one study in 2016 suggested that sexist games, and they used Grand Theft Auto as an example. I mean, in, in 2005, I'm seeing that. I'm not seeing it in 2016. Um, you know, but anyway, uh, that that uh, sexist games may reduce empathy toward women. Although no direct game effect was found, the authors argued that an interaction between game condition, masculine role norms, gender and avatar identification produce enough evidence to claim causal effects, causal effects. Comments by other scholars on this study reflect some concerns over the methodology, including a possible failure of the randomization to game conditions. So, again, whenever there's a study that comes out saying that, yes, we think there's some sort of correlation, it instantly is met with criticism saying, well, you didn't do this right or you didn't record this right. And so there was a study on the effect of crime. So in 2008, records held by the U.S. Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention and Office of Justice Programs indicated that arrests for violent crimes in the U.S. had decreased since the early 1990s in both children and adults. This decrease occurred despite increasing sales of violent video games and increases in graphical violent content in those games. And that was in 2008. So imagine now when the games are more realistic and more violent, and it's still going down. So, and, and this is, uh, have, it's been going on for a long time um, where people have been coming out against games. Uh, so this is a little bit of the of kind of the, the public debate in the US. So even as early as the 1980s, the president of the Long Island PTA, the is it the PTA is the some parental something association, parent teacher association. Thank you. Uh, even though no one helped me, I figured that on my own. <laughs> and I said thank you to you. Uh, the president of the Long Island PTA sought legislation to govern the proximity of video game arcades to schools. So Ronnie Lamb was trying to make that arcades couldn't be close to schools. Okay, and this is the 80s, early 80s. So watch out for that Pac-Man and that Donkey Kong uh, being too close to schools. You don't want to make them violent. Um, in 1990s, Joe Lieberman, this one's a little, a little bigger, more well-known. Joe Lieberman was a U.S. senator. 
and he had a hearing about violent video games such as Mortal Kombat. There's actually some interesting stuff about this and, and eventually what led to the ESRB being started was because the industry decided to govern themselves. Because if the industry wasn't going to govern themselves, the government was possibly going to step in and start putting labels on things and warning things. And that was what we didn't want. And so they decided to come up with their own thing. Interestingly enough, Sega had actually done it first. And when all this was going on, Nintendo, Nintendo and Sega, if you read the book, um, this, the uh, Console Wars, an incredible, uh, historically accurate, while still skewed from the view of Sega, uh, look into what was going on in the 16-bit era wars between the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo, between Sega and Nintendo. And one of the things was that Nintendo basically came to the courtroom and was arguing that Sega, you know, made violent games. They made games for kids. You know, Sega should, you know, and, and Nintendo almost wanted this rating because they thought it would hurt Sega. They wanted the government to step in. And Sega ultimately, because Sega had invited Nintendo to be with them as part of this rating board. And Nintendo didn't want anything to do with them. They didn't want to have a part of another company. They they could place it on their own, essentially, was Nintendo's stance. And they were, for the most part, you know, keeping most violent video games here. On the Super Nintendo, Mortal Kombat 1 does not have blood. It has gray sweat. In the Genesis version, it was locked, and you could unlock the blood. But the Super Nintendo version had no blood at all, except for that gray sweat, and, which was basically the blood just colored gray. And then eventually, though, the game sold so terribly on Super Nintendo compared to the Genesis, Nintendo reversed that. But Nintendo was trying to police themselves already. Sega later, though, pointed out that Nintendo was not innocent at all, and they used the Super Scope as the reference because Nintendo was literally selling a bazooka-shaped item to kids. So the ESRB was essentially founded based on, all these, based on these early um, attempts to regulate the industry more. And so uh, David Grossman, a former West Point psychology professor and lieutenant commander, wrote books about violence in media, including uh, On Killing and Stop Teaching Our Kids to Kill. He described first-person shooter games as murder simulators and argued that video game publishers unethically train children in the use of weapons and harden them emotionally towards commitments of murders by simulating the killing of hundreds of thousands of opponents in a single typical video game. Um, so what I want to say about that right away, since we're on the subject is how many games have you playing the bad guy killing the good guys? Very few, very, very few. Take a game like Duke Nukem. You're fighting aliens. Uh, you take a game like doom. You're fighting demons. Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. I mean, you can kill civilians, but most of the people you kill in that game, unless you're running around killing innocent people on purpose, most people you kill in that game are like other shady dudes and other bad people. And yes, you can kill cops. And yes, you can kill prostitutes. And you can kill civilians. But that's one game out of how many. You know, you play a game like Horizon Zero Dawn and you're, you're killing robotic creatures. And, and you play a game like Assassin's Creed and you're, you're I don't know, murdering uh, dictators and, and kings and, and stuff like that. I, it's just, it's crazy to me because they act like every single game ever made is... Even even Call of Duty games, you're typically playing as the allies, or you're playing as what, what history would go down as the good guys. And so you're taking on the evil force, the oppressive force. So why is that, you know, why is that where they go to, acting like everything here is meant to harden them emotionally? towards If it hardens me emotionally, like, like if I play Wolfenstein 2 and I'm killing Nazis and KKK members, if that emotionally hardens me to my ability in one day to kill uh, 
someone who's trying to kill me who's a KKK member or a Nazi, I'm okay with that emotional hardening, I guess. Um, so then we had, uh, then there was in 2013, uh, a professor talked about how the U.S. military has actually financed video games, which is true. Uh, one of the games, uh, America's Army for Xbox, was originally designed as like a training tool for the military. And uh, there are the Unreal Engine. I did a story on this years and years ago. Um, but the Unreal Engine has been used for certain games to train military. And and if you see like um, certain pilots will go through like. Uh, training and essentially what's a huge flight simulator which you could argue is a video game but it's it's a flight simulator you know uh anyway that it is what it is but so this isn't the first time it's ever come up and there have been a quite a public debate about violent video games causing violence in people throughout everything and uh and then lastly you might remember jack thompson if you've never heard of jack thompson uh this guy is a, used to be a lawyer until he got disbarred because he kept bringing ridiculous um, false uh, statements and he kept uh, for, and for uh, inappropriate conduct and for disparaging and humiliating litigants. So Jack, uh, John Bruce, Jack Thompson, uh, he, he was the guy that was always around. He, he was, uh, he sued Rockstar and, and he sued um, to, to try to get Grand Theft Auto pulled from the markets and he sued, um, Howard Stern because he didn't like him and he's he uh he sued rappers over their albums and there's a whole bunch of nonsense so this guy sucks uh thankfully he's gone away but it seemed like for a while there in the early 2000s he was just he just kept bringing up every every time was you hear his name and he just groaned a little bit so here's some of the examples um so it, this is mostly about uh Grand Theft Auto so in Tennessee, he returned to file a lawsuit in Tennessee State Court on behalf of the victims of two teenage stepbrothers who had pleaded guilty to reckless homicide, endangerment, and assault. Since the boys told investigators they were inspired by Grand Theft Auto 3, Thompson sought $246 million in damages from the publisher. So if you remember this story, I, I actually remember this very little, but I remember that was their excuse. They did this, they, you know, they killed someone, and then they said, well, it, the video game made me do it. It was their tried there was their defense to try to get out of it and uh it didn't work <clears throat> and um uh, he so they sued take two interactive they sold sony online uh, or sony computer entertainment of america and they sued walmart okay apparently you can sue this store but again guns don't kill people people kill people but video games and walmart and sony are responsible for that murder not the people that did it right see where i'm going with all this um in Florida, Thompson once reported that he had videotaped a Miami Best Buy selling a copy of Grand Theft Auto Vice City to his son, who was 10 at the time. In a letter to Best Buy, he wrote, Prosecutions and public relations consequences should fall on your Minneapolis headquarters like snowflakes. He eventually sued the company in Florida, arguing that it violated a law against the sale of sexual materials deemed harmful to minors. In January 2005, Best Buy agreed that it would enforce an existing policy to check the identification of anyone who appeared to be 17 or under and tried to purchase games rated M for mature. No law in effect at the time prohibiting, prohibited selling M-rated games to juveniles. So that's another good point, right? So there is no law that says you cannot sell mature-rated games to people under 17. Now, the reason there isn't a law is because the industry started policing itself. When I worked at GameStop, we took it very seriously. Best Buy now takes it very seriously. Walmart, always been taking it very seriously. At You know, 
I, I like to believe a little bit more in personal responsibility at my store. It really does depend on the product, but most of the time, if like a 15 year old kid comes in and wants to buy Call of Duty, I'm not going to stop them. You know, it's, it's, it's a judgment call. And now, yeah, sometimes I kid you not, a five year old will come up with Grand Theft Auto and I'll say, Hey, you know, this one's kind of rough. Yeah. It's gotta be okay with your parents. Okay. Um, not to mention that we have a really good return policy that says if they take a game home and their parents are pissed, they bring it back. We'll return it. Like, I don't have a problem with that, especially for that reason, if they deem it inappropriate. I think that's cool because that shows that the parents actually watch what their kids are playing and make that decision. And then, you know, the store should work with the parents to do that. You know, that that's the good relationship. And uh, and so sometimes, uh, you know, even if a kid comes up with a Grand Theft Auto game with his parent, and I'll just say, you know, just to let you know, like, have you guys ever played this one or I just want to let you know what's in it and you kind of describe what it is and oftentimes you'll either hear the parents be completely surprised because they had no idea it was that bad or or they'll just go yeah we're well, gonna play it as friend's house anyway and then they walk away and you just go okay <laughs> I mean you're an adult um you could stop them but okay you could tell the friend's parents hey don't want them playing that you could take some personal responsibility as a parent, but I digress. Um, <clears throat> so uh, then he was really up in arms about bully. <clears throat> so when Rockstar came out with, uh, or when when, uh, yeah, Rockstar was releasing Bully, he he essentially said Bully was Grand Theft Auto in schools. It was going to inspire school shootings. It was terrible, uh, all this nonsense, which it is not at all. Bully's an awesome game, and uh, it's just kind of more of a fun. It's more of like a school simulator. <laughs> Um, there's no murder. It's just, it's frustrating to me when, when things are misrepresented, you know, if you want to make a point based off the facts, I, I respect that. Don't respect misinformation. Uh, and like I said, so he's talking about Mortal Kombat, same sort of thing. He sent a cease and desist letter to Midway games about Mortal Kombat Armageddon claiming the game was illegally profiting on his likeness because gamers could create a fighter option and the character who, and could make a character who looked like him. Midway did not respond to the letter at all. <laughs> as they shouldn't have so um so that's a little bit about uh jack thompson and i really want to wrap this topic up because i've been i've been milking it here but i i guess lastly we have to uh i think we have to and you'll hear me say this on the podcast the first time you're watching first time listening it's the first time you hear it if you've listened to this before you know i've heard said this before and I, I will not ever go back on this we need to be better and what i mean by that is everything we can do we need to do it and we need to try to be better if we see somebody who's getting picked on, or we see somebody who's maybe being, try to understand that person. Try to figure out where they're coming from. You'd be surprised. And this isn't some hold hands in a circle kumbaya stuff, okay? I'm just saying, look at your fellow people. Like if you, if, if you know, and when I was in high school, I made fun of people too. And and I, I was bullied more than I bullied, but I picked on people too, like beneath me. And I think about that all the time and how I felt when it was being done to me and how I didn't even think about that when I did it to someone else. It's a, It's kind of a vicious cycle, you know? And so you have to be better than that. If you see someone like, like try to understand it, you know, if you're, if you're older and you're listening to this and you have kids that are, you know, younger, middle school, high school, talk to them about that. Like be, be the person that helps somebody not do that instead of being the person who causes someone to do that and, or, or helps push them in that direction, you know, and it is tough. And in high school, when I was in high school, I mean, it it, it 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 did feel different. You know, I mean, Columbine happened when I was in high school. Uh, and I remember my friend Adam not being allowed to wear his black jacket anymore. And uh, I remember them changing everything. We never got metal detectors or anything, but it was it was totally different. But then they started looking at people who could potentially do that, and they shunned them even more. 
you know, they used to make fun of my friend before they banned his jacket outright. They'd make fun of him and called him like a school shooter and stuff like that. It was unbelievable. And like, you just don't understand what you're doing. And I understand when you're a kid, you're kind of dumb and you say stupid stuff. And I, I, I get it. That, that was me too. I was right there, but we got to be better. You know, let's be better than that. Um, and, and maybe we prevent one of these things. You may never know it, but you may have prevented something like that. And, um, and that's all we can really hope for that we don't have to see this again in another month, even though I don't, I don't, I think we will. And unfortunately I don't, I don't see this changing until we change a little bit of ourselves. So moving on, um, to a less somber topic, but still an infuriating one. If I might be so, um, so honest about it. So the, uh, system shock, had a uh, had an update version that came out on Steam. Really well done. And it was really, really fun, and they brought it back on people. And basically, I don't want to say a remaster. It was just pretty much, it was like a port, I guess, like an updated port. Really good. Thank you. Thank you, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Night Dive Studios for doing this awesome port. So the guys that do that, so a couple years ago, they go to Kickstarter, and they say, you know what, we're actually going to do a full remake of System Shock. We're going to do a reboot. It's going to be good. We're going to put it, we've got in the uni engine. We have a, a demo built and, and according to them, we already have gotten through about 25% of development. So this, you know, a lot of Kickstarters, and this is true, but they admit to this, a lot of Kickstarters don't end on time ever because people don't understand the scope and scale of things. But this game was supposed to be different because I'm just going to get to the Kickstarter page because this one was going to be different because they already had a good development started. And I'll be the first to admit, I have some, I, I have some, I have a pony in this race because I kicked in $155 to get the like special big box PC edition that was like signed and had a bunch of extras because I love System Shock. I think it's a great game. I was really excited for this and I also am a collector, so I'm big on physical stuff. And so the news then is two days ago, Night Dive Studios, the CEO, Stephen Kick, wrote to the backers, quote, I have put the team on hiatus while we reassess our path so that we can return to our vision. We are taking a break, but not ending the project. System Shock is going to be completed and all of our promises fulfilled, end quote. So, yeah, it was the summer of 2016, so it'll be two years ago this summer that the campaign started and ended uh, very successfully. Um... Sorry, let me just find this here real quick. I had this up and then I must have closed the tab on accident. Um, so there was a total of 21,625 backers. And it raised $1.3 million. Originally pledged $900,000 goal. So that's a lot of money. <laughs> and a part of that is my money. Um, and so... The, uh, the, the update was entitled, Sometimes You Need to Take a Step Back in Order to Take Two Steps Forward. <sighs> so this is the full update from the CEO, Night Dive Studios, Stephen Kick. In March of 2016, Night Dive Studios released our video of our vision of System Shock Remastered. Done in Unity, it was an immediate hit and almost half a million views on YouTube. In June of 2016, we launched a Kickstarter campaign to make the vision into a reality. It was tremendously successful with over 21,000 backers contributing over 1.3 million to the campaign. We put together a development team and began working on the game, but along the way, something happened. 
maybe we were too successful. Maybe we lost our focus. Uh, I think the first one's not true, and I think the second one is true. Anyway, back to it. Quote, the vision began to change. We moved from a remaster to a completely new game. We shifted engines from Unity to Unreal, a choice that we don't regret and one that has worked out for us. With the Switch, we began envisioning doing more, but straying from the core concepts of the original title. So this is something, end quote. So this is something we call in the business uh, feature creep, <laughs> a scope creep, where the, and, and this is actually a big issue I have with Kickstarter and actually with stretch goals. So originally they say, hey, give us 50,000 bucks, we'll make this game, and you get all this stuff. And then they say, but hey, you get to 60,000, we're going to add another level. Get to 100,000, we're going to add four more mini-bosses and two more sub-bosses. And then if you get to 200,000, we're going to throw in a battle mode and all this other stuff. Well, hold on. So because you're more successful and you have more money, you start growing the scope of the project out of what the original backers paid you for. And that's frustrating. That's exactly what happened here. And he's admitting to it. I will give him credit. He had to come out and say what's going on. I don't know why he did. My guess would be because a lot of these people disappear. I'm guessing that either there was a lot of negativity coming out or somebody from there had talked and there was a story that was going to come out about it and they got out ahead of it, uh, which we've been seeing a lot of lately. Anyway, going back to the quote, uh, to the update, Kickstarter update, quote, as our concept grew and our team changed, so did the scope of what we were doing. And with what the higher and, and with that, the budget for the game, as the budget grew, we began a long series of conversations with potential publishing partners. The more that we worked on the game, the more that the more that we wanted to do and the further we got from the original concepts that made System Shock so great. Ultimately, the responsibility for the decision rests with me as the CEO and founder of Night Dive Studios, a company that was built on the restoration of the System Shock franchise. I let things get out of control. I can tell you that I did it for all the right reasons, that I was totally committed to making a great game, but it has become clear to me that we took the wrong path, that we turned our backs on the very people who made this possible, our Kickstarter backers. I have put the team on hiatus while we reassess our path so that we can return to our vision. We are taking a break, but not ending the project. Please accept my personal assurance that we will be back and stronger than ever. System Shock is going to be completed and all of the promises fulfilled. Stephen Kick, end quote. So, that's... uh. That's it. Um, they the, and what was so a couple? There's a whole bunch. So let's get started, I guess, on this. So first, I don't like how the whole team has to go on hiatus. What in the hell hiatus do you have to go on to refocus a project, right? Like, why do you need to take a break to do that? You don't. The only reason you need to take a break is because you don't have any money left. And so one of the uh, so uh, Polygon talked to somebody familiar with the project speaking on the condition of uh being anonymous and they told polygon that mission creep and unrealistic ambitions had eaten up the kickstarter funds and then later in an interview the director of business development larry cooperman said that a strategy to pitch the game to publishers in order to secure more funding had not been successful he added that around 15 contract workers will no longer be working on the game but that night dive is not laying off any full-time staff so Cooperman said that he had been speaking with various publishers about funding development, but that Night Dive's vision and ambition did not match with market expectations. A shiny new thing comes along and gets added to the project, he said, and our developers wanted to add their own ideas, and the vision expanded. Uh, so after the hiatus, Cooperman says development will begin again with some creators of the original demo, which attracted so much interest in the first place, likely returning to work on the project. 
when pressed for a timeline, he estimated that the game will release in 18 to 24 months from now. So two more years, which is two years after it was originally started. So then I want to talk a little bit about Kickstarter. Um, I have actually asked for a refund. I assume I'm not going to get it because I'm guessing they've gotten about thousands upon thousands of requests for refunds. Um, but there's a couple things I want to talk about. One is I, I, I want to not jump the gun on this one, but I don't believe it's ever going to come out. I, I, I believe that. The good thing about Night Dive Studios is that this isn't all that they're doing. They actually have like a distribution website and they work on restoring games and they have um like if you go to Night Dive, you can buy, you can buy, let's see here. So you can buy like, because they did the, the system shock, which sold really well, obviously it got them some money, but they also, um, oh God, this website's atrocious. Uh, they did the Turok 2 PC ports. Like they've gotten some licenses of things to like remake or to, to update on Steam. So they have money, they're around. They have, um, like, if you go here, you can buy text, like, like they're a distribution service. You can buy Tex Murphy, you can buy Shadow Man, you can buy Wizardry 8. So you can buy stuff there. They're connected to GOG and the Humble Store. So they're not just a studio that got some money and then they're going to disappear. If that happens, their whole business will go under, clearly. So, um, but I, I think it's not going to come out. And I think we have to assume that our money's gone. Now, the first issue I have is that a lot of people, and this is oftentimes with a lot of things we see, and it even goes back to my Dr. Disrespect thing a couple weeks ago, people are so quick to stick up for things, which I, I don't understand oftentimes why they're sticking up for it. So people here are saying, hey, man, we, we, we understand. It's cool. Make the best game you can do. We love you. We love There should be not a single person who's happy to hear this. Now, I understand if there are people who are hopeful still and say, hey, look, I appreciate you being honest. But you have an expect, you know, we have an expectation of you. I'd like you to fulfill that expectation. You know, we'd love more updates. We want to hold you more accountable. But there are people who are like, it's okay. Take as long as you need, man. Take as long as you need. No, don't take as long as you need. Look at, well, look what happened when we trusted them with our money. And so you've got this kind of, they stick up for anything. Uh, lately, I've been seeing this a lot, kind of a, a backlash kickback with GameStop. So GameStop for many, many years was the butt of many internet jokes. And I used to work there while it was. So it was hard sometimes telling people where you worked because people would assume that you were part of the problem in the machine that they didn't like that was GameStop. And there's all these great memes out there where, you know, it's like this guy sitting in front of his collection. It's the, the Guinness World Record for most amazing collection. GameStop will give you a 235. <laughs> and it's, it's funny, you know. But then there's people who stick up for them and they're just like, you guys are stupid. You don't understand how business works. You know how business works? They have to buy something for less than they sell it for. Duh. And then they kind of like attack you for attacking GameStop. It's like a blind loyalty almost, I guess you would say. Which is funny because they're not wrong in what they're saying. But if they knew all the examples of how atrocious some of GameStop's prices get, that's why people are upset. They're not upset because they got $25 for a game that GameStop sells for 50 you know, that's not what's making them mad. What's making them mad is when right now, I think Xbox 364 gigabytes, they're paying, I want to say they're paying $16 for, and then they're selling them for $79.99. Now, again, don't care if you pay $16 for it, but why would you sell buy it for 16 to sell it for 80? That's what's inappropriate. If you have so many that you can't sell them, try lowering the price with a lower price. People will buy them. Yeah. 
crazy idea, right? So lower the price. Buy them for 16 still. I don't care. Sell them for 40 You want to see Xbox 360s fly? $49.99 for a slim 4 gig, and those things will blast out the door. I know because I put mine on sale when I was overstocked on them during Christmas, and they flew out the door. And so much that now they're not overstocked anymore, and I can pay a nice, decent price for it. Like, we sell ours for $69.99. I think we pay... 40 bucks, 35, 40 bucks for it. It's not, it's not hard people. And now again, I don't have as much overhead as a GameStop store does, but you'd be surprised. I have uh, two full-time employees, not including myself and a part-time employee. So we're not just, it's not just me providing for myself at my store. I have a lot of expense. I have $2,000 a month rent. I have all those sort of things, you know, we have to pay uh, to do business. And so I understand the, the idea of having to make profit, but anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent there. So people are sticking up for them though. And they're just, it's crazy to me. And so people are sticking up for these. And one of the most common complaints that people have, or one of the attacks they do on the people who are upset by this, like, first of all, we have every right to be upset. We paid money, good money for a product. Now I understand how Kickstarter works. I know a few people are going to hear that and they're going to go, Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> this is not a transaction that I'm paying. You know, it's, it's not a guarantee is what I'm going to say, but that does not mean that there's not an expectation that I will not get the product that I paid for. That's something that really frustrates me about people that are, are attacking people upset about this Kickstarter or any Kickstarter, frankly, one Kickstarter is not, I repeat, it is not a donation site. I'm going to repeat that Kickstarter is not a donation site. Now I will say it is an investment site. You're investing in that game to get it made so that you can get a cool reward. There are certain responsibilities when you take investments, certain risks involved with investments. One of the risks is that the project will not come to fruition. That is fair and that is accurate. However, to say that we are entitled or have an entitlement attitude because we paid for an item and we want to receive the item we paid for is ignorant. And I'm not going to back down on that at all. I do not like when people argue that you sent money to Kickstarter, you shouldn't have expected anything in return because you're not guaranteed anything. Not being guaranteed something and not expecting something are two totally different things. And I'm allowed to expect that my money went into the hands of intelligent people who had a track record of releasing games and weren't just some fly-by-night company and that they would fulfill those promises, especially when they had already had a working demo. That's a realistic expectation of a Kickstarter. Now, to say that uh, I'm entitled or that I deserve something or that I deserve my money back, I can't even say that I deserve my money back because it was a risk. I still asked for it. I asked very politely because I have a feeling they're getting just blasted with negativity and maybe someone will see my positive one and just give him my $155 back. But so, so that's the other thing that bothers me is the blind loyalty and attacking people who have every right to be upset that this Kickstarter did not go their way. And what upsets me about this is, and actually this is a pattern I've been seeing for Kickstarter for a while. And I think crowdfunding is going to eat itself up because the problem with crowdfunding is that there's no responsibility on the people making the game. All the responsibility, like all of the risk falls on the people funding it. Now that'd be fine if there's some sort of extra reward for funding it, but all we get if we fund it and, and our risk and, and we, we get the product, that's all you get. If the project is 100% successful, all you get is the product you paid for. You don't get projected earnings. You don't get any sort of bonus. You don't get anything extra. You get what you paid for. And in many times, you paid more for it than usual. 
So, uh, they did a Kickstarter for Bloodstained, <laughs> which I also spent, I spent $300 on that one because I wanted the physical signed by uh, Koji Igarashi, who I've met actually, and I have his autograph on other things. I like Iga a lot. He's a good, <laughs> he's a good guy. Um, really nice guy. And um, so I backed his project because I love Castlevania. I love his work. Um, and it keeps getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And then they recently announced that the physical edition was up for pre-order somewhere. And I believe it was $39.99. And to the first cheapest tier to get a physical copy was 50 bucks, I believe 50 or 60 on the Kickstarter page. So people were up in arms about that. And they were like, well, what the hell? You know, I could have just waited and bought a physical on Amazon for 20 bucks cheaper. That actually, I don't agree with because that is part of what we're doing. We're the early investors. We don't necessarily get, now we're also getting a special edition of the game that doesn't come in the regular edition that's going to Amazon. But, you know, we did invest in that. So that is, that that is, because this game wouldn't come out if we didn't kick that in, right? You know, it's like the people, the early adopters of VR. So there, there is, there is a reason why we don't like something like that. I don't agree with their points, how, you know, we paid overpaid than what the other people are going to pay at retail. Well, we paid for a special edition, but we also, we helped fund the game. That's the sense of pride we get to have from that. But to have zero expectation of ever getting anything back from Kickstarter, it's completely bonkers. Um, so it's making me very leery when it comes to this. Also crowdfunding in general. Uh, Star Citizen basically has the exact same issue that System Shock has, except they got so much more money and continue to raise so much money that they can keep going. Because if they had secured a publisher, Night Dive would have kept going if they could have secured publishing rights. But the problem clearly is that the game's two years away and no publisher wants to kick in enough money to keep them going for two years. And how sad is that? that all you were supposed to do was do a reboot of a great game that you already had apparently 25% working and you blew the scale out, wasted all your money. Oh, I'm sorry. You wasted all of our money. You didn't waste your money. They're not losing anything. They got paid. The people, the CEO got paid. He's getting paid. You know, we're, you know, they're, they're still making their money. We're not getting our product. And so I always hated that about Kickstarter. Basically you're, you're up, you're, you're putting up the cost of the, of, and the risk and you're putting up everything up front and best case scenario, you get what you paid for. Worst case scenario, you lose all your money. So I think it's fair to hold Kickstarter's feet to the fire here because they need to go a little stronger and guarantee a little more. Because Kickstarter takes their percentage from a funded project. They take the money from us, from our donations, and they're happy. They got their money. Kickstarter doesn't care if this thing never finishes. And so it's frustrating. And the issue I'm really having is that it makes me not want to back other things on Kickstarter. I've currently got like four or five Kickstarters that I backed over the last four or five years that are still work in progress. One's a game called Ghost Song. Looks like a really good 2D style Metroid Castlevania type game. And it's, it's, I don't think it's ever going to come out. Guys change animations all the time. He's like, he's like, Oh, this month I worked on a new animation for the hero. Well, the old one looked fine, but I'm glad that you felt like you had to make a new animation. And then I, I did the same thing with a game called Anne. A-N-N-E, and it was like a little robot looked kind of like Cave Story a little bit, graphically looking. Got the physical stuff two or three years ago, got a little box with the with a USB Super Nintendo mock-up controller, and like a, a fake box that says Anne, and still no game. Game every month, it's like, hey guys, haven't talked to you in a while. Here's what's going on. And, and it just feels like way too many projects are like that now. And so it makes me very leery to back things in the future, because for a long stretch there, I was under the impression like, hey, you back it, you're good. 
I backed the Dark Souls game, super successful. Backed the Resident Evil 2 game, it's looking to be successful. Deadly Premonition game, successful. It's things like that, successful. All the video game ones, man, it just seems rough. And and but and I'm, again, I'm dragging this out too far. But long story short, it's okay for us to be upset that this happened. I appreciate them taking responsibility for it, but we're allowed to be upset and we're allowed to, what do I want to say? We're, we're allowed to feel the way we feel without being criticized for backing a project. You know, um, Toe Jam and Earl, another one caught in development hell. I did a, a video a couple months ago about Project Phoenix, you know, where they basically took the money from that game and developed a different game. And now Project Phoenix will just never come out. Uh, you can see on my channel, one of my, one of my bigger videos is uh, the Commodore 64, the C64 Mini. I don't have a problem with the C64 Mini, and I especially don't have a problem with the Commodore 64. Like, everyone who listens to that video thinks I hate the 64. I love the Commodore 64. That was a great system. But the problem I have is that it was an Indiegogo campaign where people paid for a full-price Commodore computer, and what, and then that got delayed and delayed and delayed, and now they're saying, well, for the time being, we're going to give everybody a, a, a mini Commodore 64 because this will make us enough money to finish the project so we can get out the full-size Commodore to you guys. That's, that's such bull crap, you know, that's such garbage that they can, it's such garbage that they can take your money and then waste it, make another product that can hopefully make them more money. They're never going to go back to the C64 large console. Why would they? It proved that they couldn't make it in the amount of money they got funded and it's not going to sell in the market. Just like the Atari box keeps getting delayed and delayed. Another one of my videos did pretty good. Like, like the Atari box is another hunk of junk. So and, and that's mon now, thankfully, the Atari box has not taken anyone's money yet. They were supposed to do pre-orders like a month or two ago, and they just didn't, which was awesome. Like the day of the pre-orders, they said they're not pre-ordering yet. So I don't know. They, they clearly watched my video with the 5,000 views and were like swayed by my, by my good points I made. <laughs> but we are allowed to be upset, and we, are, uh, we have an expectation that our product will be delivered, and that's not entitlement. That is fair. Now, to... To say we're owed something else besides that, well, that's a different story. Or to say that we're guaranteed anything, you're right. There is an amount of risk that we take with Kickstarter, and, and that's very true. So moving on from that, uh, we're moving over to uh, – this is a, a quick follow-up to my story last week uh, when the Hawaii legis state legislator introduced proposals to regulate video games and more specifically loot boxes, put little stickers on the box, and not allow people under 21 to buy games that have gambling in them. So after that, uh, a day after that, Senator Maggie Hassan, a Democrat from New Hampshire, wrote to the ESRB to ask her to re-examine how games with loot boxes are rated. In her letter to ESRB President Patricia Vance, Hassan acknowledged that there is robust debate over whether loot boxes should be considered gambling, but contended that they deserved extra scrutiny by the ratings authority. Quote, the prevalence of an in-game microtransaction, often referred to as loot boxes, raises several concerns surrounding the use of psychological principles and enticing mechanics that closely mirror those often found in casinos and games of chance. End quote. Um, quote, I also urge the board to examine whether the design and marketing approach to loot boxes in games geared towards children is being conducted in an ethical and transparent way that adequately protects the developing minds of young children from predatory practices end quote uh, and then uh, quote she closed by saying by asking the ESRB to quote collect and publish data on how developers are using loot boxes how widespread their use is and how much money players spend on them 
So I thought that was a neat follow-up. I don't really have a lot extra to add to that, except this is excellent. Once this sort of stuff, and, and I said this last week though, I'm not super big on extra government regulation, especially of a hobby of mine, because they start regulating this, they might start regulating content and they might start regulating other things. Um, but loot boxes have been getting obnoxious. And the fact that ESRB refuses to categorize loot boxes, random loot boxes as gambling, to me is short-sighted and it's inaccurate. And obviously the ESRB is the, um, the Entertainment Software Association is its parent company. That is founded by a group of industry. It, it's, it's, basically, it's basically a lobbying group for the video game industry. So it's their job to make sure that video games get positive legislation, whether it's, you know, in local government, state government, and federal government. So that's their job. That's what they do. A bunch of the people on that are people who work in the gaming industry. So it's not like they're a governing body over the video game industry. They're actually, it's kind of like the commissioner of the NFL. He He's paid by the owners. So he's not really... He doesn't rule over the owners. He's paid by them. He's essentially, he works for them. So there's always going to be a conflict of interest when it comes to that. And, and this is sort of the same thing. So they have to police themselves, which was why it was created initially in the first place. So I'd like to see that actually happen. I don't know if it will, but I hope so. And I, But I love the fact that it's getting recognition. So um, that's all I really wanted to say about that. And then lastly, so I want to talk a little bit about Black, uh, Black Panther. So I went and saw that Thursday night. And I thought it was pretty good. I think it's definitely, what I like about it was it had a different vibe. Now, I know a lot of people would disagree with this. I don't have Marvel movie fatigue yet. I really have enjoyed the last two that I've watched. I'm not saying there weren't some stinkers in there and some mediocre ones in there. But I, I thought it was pretty good. This one falls right about a, a 7 or 8 out of 10 for me. It, it was good action. In the beginning, a lot of the action was very um, hard to see. It was dark and doing like the really fast moving and fast cuts. And I was like, oh, I don't want to watch a movie like this. Like, I don't want to watch Transformers, okay? I want to watch a Marvel movie with really good action. And it turned into that. Uh, and it was really, really good. But more so the point I want to make about this. And I'll be honest, I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk about stuff like this. But I'm going to because this is how I feel about it. And that's hopefully why you're still listening. But I grew up reading comic books and you know, playing video games and watching movies, idolizing certain people. And so my favorite are the X-Men and Spider-Man. Wolverine and Gambit of the X-Men, particularly um, Wolverine, mostly, you know, um, but even things like idolize the Ninja Turtles. I, 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 as a kid, you idolize these things, people you want to look up to, people you want to be like, heroes, you know. And I always felt like I could see myself as that hero. I could see myself as Spider-Man. He was me. He was a he was a, a nerdy kid who, you know, who who had a hard time in high school and middle school, you know, when he was younger and then he he feels though once he gets this power, he feels a responsibility. He wants to, he has an innate ability to want to help people. That felt like me. And so I could relate to that. Um, the X-Men, you always felt like they were people who were not popular and shunned, but they were still trying to do what was right even though other people were trying to stop them, and they were heroes. They did what was right. And I could see myself as Wolverine. I pretended to be, you know, like I put um, butter knives. <laughs> I, I, I masking tape butter knives to the top of my hand. And I'm like, ah, I'm Wolverine, man. And um, I could see myself as that. So as Black Panther, as I watched that movie, it was a good Marvel movie. But it wasn't aimed at me. And that's okay. It shouldn't have been. I, I'm, I, I thought it was great. I still liked it as a, as a, as a superhero movie. But it wasn't, it didn't speak to me because I didn't understand a lot of 
the the references to the culture and things that it was that Wakanda is mirroring and things like that. But here's what I really thought and I loved was that there are young kids who are going to be able to watch this movie and look up to that hero and see himself or herself as that hero. Uh, my wife, Jen, said the same thing when she saw Wonder Woman. She said the same thing. Like, she always could see herself as that hero. So it meant something to her. It spoke to her in a way. And I liked Wonder Woman as a movie, but I didn't I didn't get it on that emotional level like she did. And so Black Panther is going to have an emotional level connection with certain people. And it's... I, that that wouldn't that wouldn't be for me, but it was great, and I love that. I love the idea that there's gonna be a generation of young kids growing up that can be like, I that's me. I could, that could be me, just like how I felt when I was growing up with Spider Man and the X Men. So I thought the movie's really good. Uh, they don't really set up anything for Infinity War. It's a completely independent movie, uh, which is totally cool. I have no problem with that. It was it was good. I loved the villain. Thought he was really great. I loved the uh, like his his. Uh, in, uh, not inspiration, but his uh, his reasoning for doing what he did. Uh, I, I thought it was good. I liked it. I thought it was a really good, uh, really good villain. Really good acting, I thought too. And that was well done. Not not overly done with the comedy, you know. We're not talking like Thor Ragnarok levels of ridiculous comedy. But I thought I thought it was pretty good. And I, I do suggest you checking it out. It was really good. You know, we don't get a lot of good movies in February, <laughs> so it's, I'm glad we got one. And uh, and then obviously now it's just the long wait for Infinity War Part One which is just going to be awesome. So, uh, so that's kind of all I had to talk about for stories today, but then, uh, we're going to do my game of the week. Like I always do. So let me bring up my little cheat window. So the game we're going to be talking about today is haunting starring Poltergeist. <laughs> this is one of my all time favorite Sega Genesis games of all time ever forever. Uh, the premise is pretty simple. You get, you're on your skateboard. You get killed by a family as they're moving into a new house. You're a ghost you haunt the house in, in an attempt to try to scare them out and they move away. And then you follow them, um, which is weird. I don't, I don't know why one time wasn't enough. And you follow them to new homes and then you keep scaring them and you keep uh, haunting them. So gameplay-wise, I don't know how much you'll be able to see here. Gameplay-wise, it's an isometric view. Oh, geez. <laughs> it's an isometric view similar to like Diablo. You walk around in real time and then there's objects you can interact with and you haunt those objects. So for instance... Uh, you'll walk around the house and there's a dartboard and you, you haunt the dartboard and it, you can see an upper left corner there, uh, or upper right corner. I don't know. My picture's mirrored sometimes, whatever. In the upper corner, you can see an eyeball bleeding blood. So they open it like they're going to play darts and they see an eyeball bleeding blood and then they get scared. Then they're kind of rattled. And then you, um, you follow them to room to room and you keep scaring them. And it's really awesome. Sometimes they pee their pants. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. MA 13 rating on the front. Um, I don't know. Does it say why it just, it does not list it. Cause it wasn't ESRB. That was before the ESRB, but a really, really fun game. And then you have like an ectometer. It's like this green bar at the bottom of the screen. And when that runs out, you get sent back to the underworld and you have to go through like a maze of collecting like green droplets. And then I think you fight like a little boss at the end. And then it brings you back to the real world and where you continue to scare the, you know, literally the pants off of some of these people, <laughs> like their pants will fall down. It's hilarious. But anyway, it's really good. Um, so haunting starring Poltergeist. I want to say complete in the box. It's going for about 50 bucks now. Um, it's not really much of a hidden treasure anymore. It was published by EA when they actually made unique stuff. It was kind of cool, uh, but a very, very good game. And, uh, so then lastly, thank you. Thank you always everyone for watching. If you stuck around this long, I so much appreciate it. If you haven't, and you liked what we're doing, please subscribe. We'd, uh, we appreciate every subscription we've gotten so far. If you're listening to this on iTunes or SoundCloud, uh, and you're not much of a YouTuber, 
hey, still subscribe anyway. Uh, go to droprate.life. You can subscribe there. Or uh, if you just go to YouTube and search for The Drop Rate. Um, we're over 1,100 subs now. I mean, we, we got another 100 in a week. Um, and I just, it's awesome. And I feel so good about it. And I appreciate all the love you guys have been giving. It just kicks ass. And I love it. Um, but yeah, so as always, appreciate it. Love you guys. We'll talk to you again next week. Have a good day. Bye-bye.